This is 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. In 1984, the writer Anthony Burgess selected his 99 favourite novels in English since the outbreak of the Second World War. Never short of an opinion about books, Burgess's list is typically idiosyncratic and invites closer attention, so we've invited some of the leading scholars, critics and writers to tell us more about each of the 99 novels. So read along with us as we explore a reading list created by one of the most original literary voices of the 20th century. In this episode, we're exploring pre-civil rights America in Ralph Ellison's 1952 novel, Invisible Man, with writer and academic Sterling L. Bland, Jr. Invisible Man follows a nameless black narrator from his early life as a student of an all-black college based on the Tuskegee Institute, through his expulsion and move to New York, where he takes up a series of low-status jobs before he falls in with a radical political group called the Brotherhood, and takes part in a race riot in Harlem. The novel is part Bildungsroman, part satire, and full of literary illusion, allegory and rich imagery. It's also an impassioned commentary on the black experience in an America marked by segregation, inequality and racism. Ralph Ellison was born in Oklahoma in 1914. He discovered the power of literature at the Tuskegee Institute even though he left before graduating. In 1936, he moved to New York, meeting writers Langston Hughes and Richard Wright. Invisible Man was the only novel he published in his lifetime, though he also published two volumes of essays. Since his death in 1994, his second, unfinished novel was published in 1999 under the title Juneteenth. A longer version of this novel was published in 2010 under the title Three Days Before the Shooting. There have also been two further volumes of essays, a collection of short stories and two selections of his letters. Sterling Locator Bland Jr. is a professor of the departments of English, Africana Studies and American Studies at Rutgers University, Newark. His teaching and research interests include 19th century American literature, black literature and culture, narrative theory and jazz studies. He's the author of Voices of the Fugitives, Runaway Slave Stories and Their Fictions of Self-Creation, and Understanding 19th Century Slave Narratives. He has written extensively about Ralph Ellison and contributed essays to books such as Approaches to Teaching the Works of Ralph Ellison and Ralph Ellison in Context. His most recent book is titled In the Shadow of Invisibility, Ralph Ellison and the Promise of American Democracy. He's currently working on a book about racial passing in American literature. For all the relevant links and a list of all the books mentioned, head to the description of this episode. I'm Graham Foster and I spoke to Sterling L. Bland about Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison in October 2023. I'm delighted to welcome Sterling L. Bland to the 99 Novels podcast. Today we're going to be talking about Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, which is a surprising and, and 
complex book, which is extremely worthwhile reading. But but first, Sterling, I'd like to to ask you when you first encountered Invisible Man and and what you what you first made of it. Uh, well, first, thank you very much for having me. I, I really appreciate uh, being here. And my first encounter with Invisible Man was in some ways, I, I think, similar to other people's um, encounter. I received, as a teenager, I received the book as a gift. My recollection is that it was a book that came you know, in that gift along with maybe a Toni Morrison novel. I think it was Song of Solomon and maybe a Richard Wright novel. So I, you know, I read it. I tried to read through it and I found it, frankly, absolutely impenetrable. I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the prologue was kind of really beyond my ability as, you know, a, a youngish teenager to, to process, frankly. So I think I, I probably read through a, a good chunk of it but got, you know, just really confused in, in all that Ellison was doing with his allusions and his, uh, and his references. I ended up coming back to it as an undergraduate in university and having somebody kind of walk me through it was a huge help. And yet even then, uh, I, I, I still felt just, you know, kind of adrift in it. I, you know, just overwhelmed by it. I, I, I know for a fact that I came back to it again as a graduate student and Again, the, 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 the chance to reread it again, to talk about it in different ways was very helpful. And, you know, to be honest, you know, I, I don't always teach it, but I regularly teach, uh, the novel. And, um, it's, it's always helpful to me. Every, I tell my students, every time I go through this novel, I, I see something new. Um, and I'm surprised given all the time I've spent climbing over this novel and thinking about Ellison that there is still, after all this time, new things to find in it. So, you know, the, the short answer to your question is, you know, what I first made of it was, uh, I, I think I felt overwhelmed. You know, there's a, there's a, a line at the very end of, I believe it's in chapter one of, of the novel. He's gone through this, this, this battle. He's about to head off. Um, he's won his scholarships to college. And basically, you know, he says at that point, you know, I, I didn't understand any of this. First, I had to attend college. Uh, and I, I felt that that was my entry point into this novel, giving me at least a structure for being able to think about it and talk about it and kind of understand it. I think using the word overwhelming to describe this novel is kind of the perfect word, because while on a sort of sentence by sentence level, it's, it's not too difficult to read. The language is is fairly straightforward, but the the density of the book, the sort of layers of illusion and imagery and metaphor that are going on in the book, I think is is quite overwhelming when you first pick it up. And I, I certainly, I, I was a lot younger when I first, first read it. And I certainly felt that sort of distance from the text that you described there. Very much so. And I mean, even from its very opening, right? And just even its, even its first lines, it, it feels like it complicates the reader's relationship with the narrator. Obviously, you know, it's a first person narrative. So his voice is, is central to how we're going to understand the novel. He begins by saying, I'm an invisible man, but no, I'm, I'm not a spook like those who haunted Edgar Allan Poe, um, nor am I one of your Hollywood movie ectoplasms, right? So he gives us something immediately takes away um, uh, 
you know, frankly, as I when I when I teach the, the the novel, you know, one of the things we talk about is the idea of invisibility. He begins with his own invisibility, um, and then, frankly, spends the rest of the novel kind of complicating the parameters of that invisibility. And he does it in ways, just as you've kind of referenced here, he does it in ways that are social, that are political, uh, in ways that are deeply literary, right? I mean, he mentions Edgar Allan Poe in the very you know, second sentence of the novel. And in all these ways that are historical, that really ask us to understand a lot in order to understand what the narrator uh, is, is trying to get us to. Um, and and, and that, that is the difficulty of the proposition. And I think for me as a young reader and for many of my young readers, just figuring out you know, when exactly is the novel taking place? Where is the novel taking place? Right? He, he says at the beginning that he's on the edge of Harlem. We have references to the Harlem riots in the 30s. We have you know, kind of these social references, but it's a very complicated way in, that he asked the reader to, to come to what he's saying. Yeah, so so perhaps it would be a good time for you to basically describe the book for people who haven't read it. So what's it about? What happens in, in this book on, on a very basic level? On a basic level, complicated by its structure a bit, but on the basic level, uh, it's the story of a young Black protagonist who begins the story by uh, describing this this apartment that he lives in filled with light filled with music that he has somehow found his way to right that he has somehow uh, descended to and where he has occupied for a relatively uh, long period of time and he gives us all of that in you know a, a relatively brief prologue and then he he really says you know he doubles back and tells us um, but you know all this started 20 years ago so let me begin there Right. And he begins, you know, kind of telling the story of his journey from high school, uh, his journey into college for a, a number of reasons. He is asked to depart his college. He, he ends up moving to, uh, to New York City, to Harlem. You know, he finds himself both struggling to financially support himself. And frankly, for a while, he's, he's, his plan is to return to college, but he gets involved in a political movement, it's relatively shadowy, called the Brotherhood. Frankly, it's one of the issues uh, that he faces. He doesn't completely understand what it is the Brotherhood stands for and is asking him to do. My reading of the Brotherhood is that it's, I, I initially I kind of read it as a, a stand-in for the Communist Party. Um, but I, I think now, having thought about Ellison and his own very complicated relationship uh, to the radical left. Uh, I think in some ways the brotherhood stands in for all radical leftist politics. And it's about this young man's trajectory through that brotherhood um, into this, this idea that we kind of began with, this idea of invisibility, where you know, he begins to recognize that other people in the novel, black characters, white characters, all see him, he's, he's hyper-visible in a lot of ways, right? He is a, a Black character who the other characters see as a Black character, but his point is they don't truly see him. Uh, at some point, Harlem, uh, you know, where he is, falls into a riot, and he ends up underground. So in many ways, the novel is this kind of circular form that, that ends with him uh, you know, describing how he found his way underground and begins with him underground 
and then telling us how he got there. I think the idea about invisibility referring to the sort of in- invisibility of his real identity is, is throughout the novel. It, it's, you know, when he, he gets taken in by the Brotherhood, they make him change his name. So he's not even able to operate under his own name. And, and, and of course, the Brotherhood is run by a sort of board of white characters. So, you know, it, it all feeds into this sort of very alle- allegorical sort of thread that runs through the novel, I think. Exactly. And, you know, the, the, the irony here, and it's, it's an, an, a very Ellisonian um, irony, is our invisible man throughout the novel has no name. Uh, he remains unnamed. We're told, uh, as you say, part of the way through that once he joins this, this brotherhood, that he is given a new name. We're not told that name either. Right? We're, we're actually told very, very little about him. And, uh, you know, in some ways it's this, you know, it's a, it's a classic Bildungsroman in the sense that, you know, it's this young man trying to, to find himself in a world um, that is uh, hostile and complicated. You know, but in many ways, as you say, it also alludes to a bigger cycle of Black life in America, you know, at, at the time. And, the, you know, historically, uh, you know, it kind of begins with, uh, there's a moment where he talks about his grandfather, who has, who you know, was born in the shadow of uh, the Civil War. Um, you know, this seems to be taking place in the 1930s. So it really encapsulates a, a real particular moment in um, in American history, specifically as that history uh, relates to race. When Burgess was was compiling his list of 99 novels. In 1984, what what was the novel's reputation then? This is a novel that, um, since its publication in 1952, has not gone out of print. What's interesting about the novel is that, uh, you know, I, I, I should just say that, that Ellison, this this is Ellison's very first novel. Um, and, and Ellison was, um, you know, certainly no early bloomer, right? I mean, he, he, he published the novel at a point when he was about 39, he'd already served in the United States Merchant Marine and come back. So when the novel first came out in 52, it it really kind of occupied this very particular post-World War II space as people are kind of rethinking issues around race and power and nation uh, in general. And Ellison kind of steps in with with this novel kind of also resituating all of that around this idea uh, of race. The novel won the National Book Award uh, soon after it was published and really enjoyed a, you know, a very fine reputation in terms of being this, this great post-war novel. By the 1960s, that bloom had started to come off the rose a little bit. Uh, certainly in 1960s America, you know, there is particularly in black radicalism. The novel had begun to perhaps show its age a little bit. It's it's clear that Ellison had begun moving away from leftist politics. You can kind of feel it in the novel in his critique of the Brotherhood. And younger writers, uh, younger radical writers, I'm thinking here of writers like Amiri Baraka uh, and others who you know, were kind of at the vanguard of the black arts movement, who had who had read and had a lot of respect for Ellison, began to question his relevance. He began to feel like part of an older generation, um, you know, in some ways as he was, that was not interested in kind of thinking about blackness in a pan-African way, right? Ellison's thought process, and he's very, very clear about it, is that his interest is in 
Black America and what that means, right? He connects race very closely to nation. But by this time, the novel, was, and I'm talking about the 1960s, by this time, the novel was firmly ensconced on college syllabi. And so uh, it was relatively widely read. By the time Burgess got to it in, say, the, the mid-80s, it was a novel that had found its way to the very mainstream of you know American literature. It was a novel that regularly showed up on best American list of novels. Uh, Ellison, even though he only published one novel in his lifetime, regularly showed up as you know this this writer who kind of embodied both the possibilities and the limitations of kind of the American novelistic form. And it was buoyed by the fact that in the eighties that you know Ellison had written two. I think two stunning books of essays, one in the 60s and one in the 80s itself, that people were looking at and everyone, everyone, almost from the time he published the novel, uh, began asking, you know, when is the next novel coming out? And you know, in, in many ways, you know, I feel like people you know, kind of returned to this novel uh, for all the reasons that the, the Burgess um, you know, kind of talks about, you know, in terms about, you know, the realities of the narrator and, you know, the ways the, the apocalyptic visions that the narrate that the narrative presents for us, um, you know, all of that. And it just feels to me that in many ways by the, by the 80s, you know, people are kind of looking for something that encapsulates the complexity of race in America. And Ellison, I, you sort of alluded to it in, in your answer, but Ellison, was the sort of writer who who doesn't give you sort of easy answers in terms of what he is writing for what his novel is is about what what his sort of agenda is generally he's not easy to pin down and an example of that is at the beginning of the novel he has his narrator say i am not complaining nor am i protesting either and in his 1981 introduction to the novel ellison writes that his task wasn't really to represent the black experience, but to reveal human universals in his character's plight. Yet this is also reflecting a, a, an America that's pre-civil rights with people in the process of fighting against things like segregation. So with that in mind, is Ellison being being clear when he says it, uh, his character is not protesting? Is this a protest novel? And how do you think Ellison generally is dealing with the politics of the time in Invisible Man? So I, I think the res response to that is, is several fold. I think, and it, it's certainly borne out in some of Ellison's essays, Ellison would not have been and was not comfortable with the idea of the novel as a protest novel. Perhaps not that he didn't think of it as a kind of protest, but that his feeling was that once you put black writers in that box, you know, as protest writers, it came with a series of limitations that he didn't want. And just as you allude to, you know, Ellison was a black writer writing, you know, as you say, his novel is this pre-civil rights novel that's kind of steeped in segregation, you know, Jim Crow segregation in, in America. It obviously functions around race, the, the ways in which people in the novel respond to the, the main character himself uh, is in a very racialized way. You know, but the reality is Ellison as a writer, just as you say, saw himself as a writer writing about 
universal ideas, universal themes. You know, in some ways, the idea of invisibility kind of stretches into that too, in the sense that his point about those universalisms uh, that kind of are, you know, kind of central to American literary culture are often invisible when it comes to black characters. He mentions, say, for instance, Mark Twain, who he seems to have a great deal of, of respect for. But he also mentions that, you know, although Twain wrote a brilliant novel about about race in America, uh, that Twain really doesn't get to it because in many ways, Twain you know, really doesn't get to his character, Jim. And, you know, there is for Ellison this sense of black invisibility throughout literature, American literature, that writers have gotten close to it. And I'm thinking about writers like Faulkner, whom he also references uh, a great deal, get close to it, but aren't able to encapsulate it. The point here is that, you know, Ellison really saw himself uh, as an um, American writer that stretched beyond the parameters of, of protest. Um, I, I think when Ellison thought about protest, he, he uh, protest novels and the protest novel form. He also, he often thought about it in the context of the way we might think about Richard Wright and Native Son, you know, these novels that were very sociological in a lot of ways, you know, to kind of try to get at the, the, the root of Black experience uh, in America. And Ellison was not interested in that kind of uh, process at all. He certainly wasn't interested in a sociological process. And as I kind of alluded to earlier, after a while, he became less interested in kind of thinking about literature, even in a political process, right? It became very universalized and it became, his interest became thinking about what what exactly is the novel and how exactly does the novelist function in that body? And I'll just say that in, in, in you know, Burgess's own uh, introduction, he, he comes to that, he comes to that question. He begins by, you know, kind of asking him before he goes into talking about, you know, how he came to thinking about these 99 novels, you know, his first, one of his first questions is, I need to ask, you know, what exact, what makes a novel at all? And certainly what makes a good novel? And Ellison was asking exactly the same questions. I think sort of linking Ellison's ideas about literature to Burgess is, is quite an important thing because Ellison and Burgess, I'm not sure they were friends, but they certainly knew each other in New York. So Burgess taught for City College, New York in the early 70s. And if I'm right in thinking, Ellison taught uh, just before Burgess at City College, New York, in this visiting lecturer's chair of of English. Um, and they, they talked uh, quite a bit. And Burgess says in his autobiography that they talked about Faulkner and many of the, the touchstones of sort of Burgess's literary career are similar to Ellison's. Things like T.S. Eliot and, and Joyce and that sort of thing are, are the sort of writers that Ellison was thinking about. Um, perhaps we can talk about the, the sort of literary influence on Ellison's work a, a bit later on, but perhaps from these conversations with, with Ellison, Burgess, in his review in 99 Novels, Burgess sort of identifies that the novel Invisible Man is, is not, this is a quote, not at all the orthodox plea for integration or the impotent scream about black power. I, I will be surprised if he hasn't got that directly from Ellison, but um, <laughs> what, what do you think he means here? And do you think this is a, a supportable statement when thinking about 
Ellison in general and Invisible Man specifically? I, I would agree with you. I, I that that sounds very Ellisonian in, in in a lot of ways. You know what's what's interesting here is that that Ellison writes about certainly in his essays and I'm sure in in uh, in in lectures that he gave. You know, this talks a lot about the idea of of integration. You know, the reality was once the Supreme Court lifted the idea of segregation and separate but equal. You know, in in a letter to a a college instructor, you now Ellison is very clear in saying that you know he, he's in some ways very happy that this is happening, but he's also unclear about about what it means for American culture. He's interested in the idea of integration, and uh, the big issue here, uh, as you as you you know, kind of raise it, is that his idea of integration is much broader than the way uh, I think integration was discussed, you know, say, uh, during the civil rights movement, right? He's thinking about an integration of ideas. He's thinking about an integration of cultural awareness. Ellison's whole point is that, you know, American culture in general, from its origins, is about a kind of he uses the word integration, amalgamation, right? It's about bringing together all these bits. And so it's not simply a matter that I think as Burgess says about that, that orthodox plea for into integration, it's certainly not just, well, you know, let's now just all get along. It's, it's a way of kind of thinking in a very cultural way. It's a way, it's a way of kind of thinking in a very artistic way. Um, Cause as I say, that, that became for Ellison really his touch point, you know, how art, integrates, if you will, various parts of a very chaotic world, a chaotic, fragmented world. And chaos is also a word that shows up a great deal in Ellison's writing. Uh, and frankly, any reading through the novel itself shows that you know, the novel is written in a series of, of episodes you know, as, the, as this main character moves through his life. Almost every episode ends in chaos. Right. So Ellison is very aware of that. And so he's you know, very thoughtful about what that means. He doesn't want it simply to be this kind of binary thought about you know, either black or white or, or, um, or left or right uh, politically. He wants to think about integration as something that is much more synthetic, much more able to address all the complexities of American culture. And the second part of, of, of Burgess's comment about the imminent scream about black power, by every account, um, uh, that was not Ellison's interest whatsoever. Uh, as a matter of fact, he was very disturbed in a lot of ways and really wanted nothing to do with the Black Power movement as it developed in the in the mid 1960s into the early 1970s. He felt, frankly, that it was ideologically driven. Uh, he felt that it was ideologically driven by the left. Uh, you know, essentially, he felt that he had kind of come from radical politics in, in the 1930s and early 1940s and moved beyond all that. Uh, so to see a younger generation of black thinkers situating their ideas in radical politics was uh, of little interest to, to Ellison at all. So it's not just about this kind of desire to create a kind of black power for Ellison, but it's really um, I, I think about a greater desire to kind of see the the levels of race in humanity um, or humanity in race, if you will. I think the things you were saying about black power there are very, very clear in the certainly the last half of the novel where there's a 
the the narrator has a sort of nemesis called Raz, and uh, he he's the sort of proto Black Power Black Panther sort of street preacher almost, yes. who's who's sort of shouting and and causing violence and and that sort of thing, and the narrator is is sort of instantly turned off of that that sort of way of delivering a message. But also the, what you said about integration made me think of the, the... There's a scene, a very odd scene, where the narrator works for a paint factory and he has to make white paint by dripping black sort of serum in into a, a white paint pot and it makes it bright, bright white. Is, is this... Ellison comment, commenting on on how integration is seen in in the traditional sense, in the civil rights sense of 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 the word. I've always thought I think that's such a powerful scene, and and you you encapsulated it absolutely right. Uh, the narrator at that point has been uh, asked to depart college, and he is working on in New York on, on Long Island at Liberty Paint, Liberty Paint Factory. I, I should say that that the Liberty Paint Factory uh, is, is on strike. Uh, so he's been hired really as, you know, to kind of cross this picket line. That, that's one issue. But he's given a job and the job as you characterize it is to put nine drops of black stuff in the novels referred to as dope, um, nine drops of, of black dope into this white paint. Uh, and Liberty Paint's claim to fame, it, it supplies a lot of white paint particularly to the U.S. government. And his claim to fame is that it's white paint covers everything. But the deal is the white paint is made whiter by the presence of these nine black drops that go in. Uh, they become completely invisible to return to that idea that is central, so central to Ellison. Uh, they become completely invisible, but without those nine drops, there is no way to, to, to get this brilliant whiteness that covers uh, absolutely everything. So in some ways, yeah, I think it's about that idea of, of uh, integration. Um, and it's, you know, it comes it kind of circles back to that idea of invisibility, right? That the, the black presence is, you know, intrinsic to whiteness in a lot of ways, whether or not we are aware of it, whether or not we see it. And, you know, circling back to the idea of chaos, the, the reality is the narrator, not knowing what he's doing, makes a mistake and puts the wrong black stuff into the white paint and the white paint is you know kind of rendered uh, useless it's a, it's a powerful scene certainly um you know and, and it sort of makes you think of all sorts of interpretations which is is kind of true of a lot of the imagery throughout the novel i mean for for one example the novel at the beginning we we've talked about the narrator getting cast out of university. The university that he goes to is a is a black university set up by Booker T. Washington, who was a, a black industrialist. Correct. And uh, he describes the campus of this university as this sort of beautiful. Uh, the there's there's nature everywhere. There's trees and and shading the paths that he walks on, and and the buildings are, are th this sort of beautiful institutional buildings with I sort of pictured it with with sort of pillars and and you know quads everywhere and that sort of thing. And it just is this massively idealistic 
vision of what a black community could be in many ways. And it, it sort of struck me as when he gets expelled from this college, the, the driving force of the narrative is, is sort of being cast out of this Eden. Is that a, a correct reading of that? Or would you categorize Invisible Man as a novel that, that uses this religious imagery? And are, are there any other examples of, of that sort of thing in, in the novel? As you say, the novel, when it describes, initially, when it describes um, uh, uh, the narrator's arrival at college, and it is an arrival that he has literally fought for um, in order to, to arrive there. Uh, and it is, at first glance, um, relatively uh, Edenic. You know, specifically, he says, you know, the buildings were old and covered with vines and the roads gracefully winding lined with hedges and wild roses that dazzled the eyes in the summer sun. Honeysuckle and purple wisteria hung heavy from the trees and white magnolias mixed with their scents in the bee humming air. Um, so this is a very idealized view of education. Uh, as you said, this is a historically black college. So in many ways, it's a very idealized view of the possibilities, the Edenic possibilities of black intellectuals. It's a, it's, I feel like it's a, I feel like Ellison almost immediately begins to, to complicate that because soon after we, we kind of see the ways in which what seems to be the case on the, on the surface, this, this, this surface beauty uh, is kind of undercut by the, the arrival of, of, of other factors that kind of complicate the ways in which that surface beauty is, is understood and rendered. But I do agree with you that it is, it is certainly a place from which um, we're to understand that our narrator has aspired to reach. Um, and, you know, our narrator in some ways, in terms of that universalism that we talked about earlier, um, is represented of, you know, Black aspiration uh, in general. Um, and Ellison's, you know, complication of the ways in which that, that idealized vision can play out. You know, I mean, the, the book is not, the, na the novel is not, um, an autobiography, but Ellison himself, in many ways, uh, relatively underprivileged financially, arrives at Tuskegee University, where, like our narrator in uh, this novel, uh, he remains for three years before leaving the university. Uh, he doesn't return, and and uh, Ellison himself moves to New York, uh, you know, in the in the late 1930s, where he begins to connect himself with the radical movement uh, that's going on at the time. Um, so I, I do fully agree that it is very much an idealized version of the possibility of Blacks in America. Uh, and he sort of, I mean, the, the reason he gets kicked out of the university is because he takes a white trustee to see the Black communities surrounding the the university which are not quite as idyllic they're right. more chaotic and and you know the the there's a farmer that that has sort of dubious relationships with his family and um you know the there's a bar which this sort of bacchanalian riot stroke party is happening at and the the uh white trustee is sort of driven to sickness because of all this that he witnesses um so there's that sort of contrast between the idealized version and and i guess a sort of exaggerated depiction of what ellison was seeing in the communities surrounding 
the the university he went to. And if I could just say, I mean, if, if like the, the way you characterize that is just very accurate. I mean, in the sense that it is it is a classic Ellison episode, right? It begins with coherence in a lot of ways. You know, as readers, we're, we're a little bit. Um, you know, we are, we don't quite know where our narrator is. He kind of walks us through it. Um, but, you know, soon after there is a destabilizing force. And as you say, the destabilizing force in this case is the arrival of this white benefactor from the North, Mr. Norton, who our narrator is asked to drive around. And in, in doing so, our narrator does, doesn't realize the parameters of his role, at least uh, in terms of the black community on campus. Because what we quickly get there is this distinction between the, this rising middle-class intellectual community on campus and the black sharecroppers uh, who are, you know, kind of financially, socially, you know, at, at the very edge of things. And as you say, one of those characters is a man named Jim Trueblood, uh, who has dubious relationships um, with his with his wife and daughter, and Ellison has now brought this uh, university trustee to Jim Trueblood's home, where Jim Trueblood tells him in in specific detail uh, about those relationships. Uh, the issue there is that I think there are two issues there. Um, one issue is that the the trustee has specifically said, "Show me around." And our narrator felt it was his role to do it this, as this man said. Uh, you know, the president of the university who's going to ask him to leave the university says, you know, that, like, you, 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 just because he asked doesn't mean you had to, to show him that. You know, essentially, this is the part of the Black community that the, the, the academic Black community uh, does not want people like the trustee to see. The second part of that is that, as you say, this kind of all descends into an absolute chaos once the trustee hears the story from Jim Trueblood and is is subsequently taken to uh, I don't know this this bar um, to try to you know kind of regain himself uh, a bar slash brothel. But the fact of the matter is, in that telling of Jim Trueblood's story to the trustee, the trustee seems very uh, interested in in hearing more about this this incestuous relationship that that Jim Trueblood has had, right? And so, in some ways, the, the narrator makes the mistake, if you will, of taking uh, the trustee there. But uh, I think Ellison's point is somehow that somewhere you know, deep beneath the surface, there is a complex relationship between this white benefactor from the north and this black sharecropper from the South. And I'll just say that that is particularly a scene um, that by 1970, Toni Morrison directly picks up in her novel, The Bluest Eye, and essentially kind of the novel is a rewriting of that scene. That's a really interesting connection, this sort of connection between Ellison and and Toni Morrison. And And it sort of leads me to to my next question. I mean, reading novels like this, novels by black writers who were writing in the pre-civil rights era, uh, black writers writing generally, the the temptation is to view them purely as a sort of political enterprise. 
which I don't think would be fair in, in certainly in, in, I don't think it's fair anyway, but it's certainly in Ralph Ellison's case, I don't think it would be fair to sort of corner this off as a, a purely political novel, because as we've mentioned throughout our conversation, really, the political message is undeniable, but the 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 book is a highly literary book. Uh, it's absolutely beautifully written. The there are sentences, there are images that are that really jump out from the page and and uh, are extremely strong bits of writing. So I I was wondering really when Ellison was writing Invisible Man, and more generally, really what sort of literature was he reading? What what were his influences? Ellison's influences, as he himself kind of lays out for us, were very much modernist writers. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned, uh, for instance, uh, James Joyce, um, and you mentioned uh, earlier uh, T.S. Eliot. And in many ways, he was especially struck by T.S. Eliot, right? This, this, you know, quintessentially American writer who was able to, to, you know, write this this complex poetry that involved allusion, um, that involved historical reference, poetry that in, in many ways pushed boundaries that were very similar to the boundaries that Ellison himself you know, kind of wanted to face. You know, as as we mentioned you know earlier, Ellison was certainly certainly read William Faulkner, uh, and in, in some ways, you know, I mean, Ellison's writing is you know, not a complete critique of Faulkner, but what he liked of Faulkner is that Faulkner was able to see, you know, at, at the heart of American culture, this complicated relationship of uh, race and nation. You know, Ellison also speaks very highly in his essays about people like Hemingway, the Russian formalists, uh, you know, in, in some ways, this whole idea of our narrator, uh, not only his invisibility, but particularly his movement underground as, as a kind of underground man, uh, you know, kind of comes, I think, out of, out of Russian uh, formalism. The thing that's interesting in a lot of ways is that the writers Ellison cites most often tend to be uh, white writers through various parts of the American literary canon in the 19th uh, and 20th century and you know, parts of uh, the European uh, literary canon. It's very rare that Ellison mentions Black American writers uh, as, as influences. It's there, but they are not the ones, in, in, I think in some ways, they're not the ones, he sees them as his peers. And I'm thinking about people like Langston Hughes, um, who was one of the people when Ellison arrived in New York, helped usher Ellison into the radical left. Richard Wright, who became his friend at that moment. And you know, in many ways, Ellison kind of bristled at the idea that Wright was his mentor, but they certainly you know, kind of you know, read each other's writing and, and, and Richard Wright was very helpful in kind of directing Ellison's uh, thinking. But it's just interesting that you know, kind of Ellison situates his, 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 his influences in a very particular body of, of, uh, of white novelists. We've mentioned briefly before that Ellison primarily described himself as an American writer rather than a black American writer. Where do you think Ellison fits in the canon of both black writing in America and American writing more generally? Let me begin with the idea of Ellison as an American writer. 
uh, I feel that Ellison's reputation as an American writer has largely remained unchanged since, since the publication of Invisible Man. He is an American writer who is very interested in, very connected to the idea of, of the nation, of, of culture, of the influence of folklore. He is, he is in so many ways steeped in America in his collection of essays you know, where he talks about growing up in, in Oklahoma City. You know, he's very clear in saying that, you know, that kind of growing up in um, you know, that particular area of the United States, which, which had only become a state a decade or so before Ellison was, was born, it was a, a former you know, territory. He says it was a kind of, it was kind of cultural crossroads and it kind of returns us to the idea of, uh, of coherence and integration that we were talking about earlier. So Ellison, you know, I, I think sees himself as being inseparable from the idea of being an American writer. In his mind, he is an American writer who is, is black. In terms of Ellison as uh, a black American writer, I, I can't help wondering if after a certain point, if he didn't begin to bristle about that a little bit in the sense that, as we said, Ellison's interest was in the universal. Obviously, uh, the idea of, of race is, is central to how you know, America you know, was formed from its, from its founding documents and all the tensions about race that you know, are kind of part of that process. But Ellison really wanted, you know, he really wanted his writing to, to speak in the universal in a universal way. It, it shows up both in this novel, I think, which is why at the end of it, the, the final bit of the novel, the, the epilogue, uh, which Ellison, you know, kind of tacked on at the very end, uh, it was kind of the last piece of writing that he did to get the novel out, suddenly becomes, you know, very, very universalized. I mean, I think that's Ellison's nod to, um, you know, exactly this issue of being uh, an, an American writer. And and moving on from from that, what what do you think his legacy is today? And and do you see his work influencing any writers that are working at the moment? I do. You know, I mean, you know, I, I mentioned I mentioned um, obviously she's she's uh, not working now. I mentioned Toni Morrison, and you know, she certainly read Ellison, and she's a very good and was a very good and very close reader. I think. Uh, of the writers I'm thinking of, they they weren't trying to to rewrite Ellison. That's what you know, kind of Toni Morrison in some ways does in the bluest eye, uh, you know, a, a way of kind of rewriting Ellison. But you know, I I think in terms of you know that I you know those ideas that we kind of began this conversation with those ideas around illusion, those ideas around the coherence of popular culture with literary culture with uh, historical culture. Uh, with black culture, with mainstream American culture, um, you know, I, I certainly see that reflected in Toni Morrison. When I read Col someone like Colson Whitehead, um, I, I also see allusions to Ellison, particularly in uh, Colson Whitehead's first novel, uh, *The Intuitionist*, which you know is you know this novel that kind of functions around these ideas around race, around segregation these ideas around something that is not entirely clear. I mean, at the heart of Invisible Man is the fact that our narrator through much of the novel can, can not come to a place of clarity where he fully understands what he's experiencing, right? So in the example we gave before where he takes this 
this white college benefactor out to the, the sharecroppers area. He doesn't realize that the narrator doesn't realize that, that, that for a rising black middle class, that that is an area not to be displayed in some ways to the outside world. Um, and once our narrator becomes, say, part of the brotherhood, he doesn't fully understand their motives. He doesn't fully understand what it is they want him to do. Uh, he's a very natural speaker and he is obviously of use to them, um, but he doesn't fully understand their ideology. And by extension, he doesn't fully understand the ways in which that ideology is, is acting on, on him. Uh, and Colson Whitehead does some of the very same things uh, in, in the intuitionist. You know, I, I also think that writers like N.K. Jemison, who writes a lot of what we you know, would consider either speculative fiction or science fiction, I feel an, in, an influence of, of Ellison on her. Not that Ellison uh, had any interest whatsoever in writing science fiction, um, but I do feel that, that some of the ways in which she uses language, some of the ways in which she uses imagery, uh, and the same might be true of uh, a writer like um, Octavia Butler, uh, who also works in that same area of speculative fiction and you know, kind of uh, asks these questions about what would happen if. Um, I see them as, as very much uh, in a, a kind of lineage to uh, someone like Ralph Ellison. Do you think that, I mean, this is a question unrelated to Ellison, really, but do you think that that sort of connection between black literature and speculative fiction is something that, that is a vital sort of strand of black fiction today? I really do. And I really feel that in some ways, you know, some of the, the most powerful writing that we're, we're getting is kind of from that kind of speculative place, right? I mean, it's a place where where a writer can essentially conceptualize a new world and and ask all these questions that we're asking. How, how, how does this world work? How does it cohere? How do we understand ourselves in this world? And I think, you know, uh, speculative fiction, uh, science fiction, if you will, um, you know, kind of really does that. I think it's, it's a very important place. And I, I think it's, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting black women writers, you know, I'm thinking specifically of N.K. Jemison um, and, uh, and Octavia Butler were, were really at the forefront of, of, of that. This is a question we ask everybody who we invite onto the podcast. Uh, if you could add a hundredth book to Burgess's list of 99, what would it be and why? If I were to add a hundredth book, I would add, uh, and we've, we've already talked about it, but I would add Morrison's Bluest Eye. Uh, it came out in 1970. You know, she was writing it in the late 1960s as the Black Power movement, the Black Arts movement was, was really accelerating. And I would add it in this case, particularly because of the way in which she's able to take an image. Ellison takes the image of invisibility and really complicates it and gives us back something that makes us think about blindness and invisibility in some very new ways. And I think Morrison does the same thing with the idea of blindness, of aspiration. I mean, her main character in The Bluest Eye uh, is a character who, you know, is this young Black girl who, who basically wants these blue eyes. She wants to become invisible because of the way people look at her because of her Blackness. Um, uh, the power of the novel is that it's, it's a novel that takes place almost exclusively in, in a Black community uh, in Lorain, Ohio, uh, a little north of south uh, in the United States. And you know, Morrison offers us a critique of that Black community. She offers a critique of 
um, the uh, the world that her protagonist grows up in, the ways in which her protagonist is influenced by the idea of trauma. And I just think it's a powerful book in terms of, of how it speaks to, you know, frankly, a lot of the a lot of the kinds of issues uh, that Burgess himself kind of raised when he was talking, when he was kind of putting together uh, his thoughts about, you know, kind of uh, the novel, what novels should be, what novels should do. Uh, and I really think Morrison gets to that in some very powerful ways. Burgess is pretty clear in saying that that he's not interested in reading novels that are didactic in some ways. And, and Ellison, I think, would fully agree. Um, and I, I believe Toni Morrison would have also agreed. You know, one of the one of the beauties of Nor of, Mar of Toni Morrison's writing is that you know she gives us many ways to kind of get into what it is she's trying to 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 say. Um, you know, and in her fiction, she's not interested in kind of offering this didactic vision. She wants us to give us, you know, a way of kind of us finding ourselves um, uh, in that uh, in that world. If I could, uh, if I could offer uh, a novel and a half, if I could even go beyond of that, of course, the more the better. <laughs> <laughs> it's beyond the the context of you know the kind of time frame that that, that Burgess gave us. But I, I would also throw in uh, a novel like Light in August by by William Faulkner. If I'm remembering right, Burgess included the mansion uh, in his uh, 99 novel, right. which makes sense. Yeah. Um, which makes sense. I mean, the mansion is a novel that's about the Snopes family. It's the last in the trilogy of the Snopes family, uh, and it's 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 all of those elements that we that we get in Faulkner and that we find so powerful. It is later in Faulkner's career. Um, Light in August uh, was published in 1936, so it's a little before Burgess's time frame. But you know that that the early mid 30s, you know, for me were just the, the most powerful exhibition of, of, of Faulkner's abilities. And it feels like Light in August, uh, in some ways he does, I think what, what Ellison, for instance, would have really admired, right? He, uh, you know, it's a novel about, you know, this idea, this submerged idea of race, you know, at the center of it is a character, this, this child who was left on a doorstep, Joe Christmas, uh, in Light in August, who, may or may not, and Faulkner is never entirely clear about it in the novel, may or may not have Black parentage. And, you know, it, it feels to me that that complicating factor means that, you know, people choose to respond to that character, Joe Christmas, because of their perceptions of, of his Blackness. And it's an idea, you know, frankly, that Ellison picked up in the second novel that he was unfortunately unable uh, to complete in his in his lifetime, which centers around a character who uh, may or may not have been uh, of mixed race, uh, a character who grows up, who is left as an orphan in a black community, um, who eventually leaves that black community, uh, becomes the United States senator, a race baiting senator uh, who gets shot in an assassination attempt. Uh, in the well of, of the United States Senate. The novel, as it kind of unfolds, it's, like I say, it's thousands of pages. It's not, it doesn't really have a beginning, a middle, or an end. But the novel, as it unfolds, is this race-baiting senator talking to uh, the Black preacher, Reverend Hickman, who, who raised him. And it's the two of them, you know, literally as this senator uh, lay dying. 
they are talking about their lives together and talking about the world in which they both occupied and uh, ideas around race and, and the like. So I, I just feel that, you know, f for me, in, in, in terms of the way, you know, kind of Burgess laid out the way he thought about these 99 novels, particularly Light in August uh, and Bluest Eye would certainly merit inclusion. Well, they're great, great choices. And as a testament to the Bluest Eye's greatness, that's been recommended before on our podcast about I Mother O'Connor. <laughs> so, uh, you know, maybe it'll be recommended again too. Sterling, thank you for, for joining us on the 99 Novels podcast. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you about, about a book that is is just an amazing piece of literature and, and should be read widely, both in America and beyond, I think. And thank you very much for inviting me. I, I you know, as, as I said at the very beginning, it's a book that has really stuck with me throughout my, my lifetime. I mean, certainly as a, as a teenager, uh, trying to figure out some of Ellison's illusions. Um, you know, I, I never thought, um, you know, that I would return to it um, as often as I have. You know, uh, you know, both to read it, um, to to write, um, to write about it in articles and, and in this latest book. Um, so yes, I, I fully agree that it's a book that uh, should be read in the United States, certainly beyond. Um, Ellison would have certainly thought this exactly the same way, and uh, I, I really appreciate having the chance to. Uh, to have talked about it today. You've been listening to 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. In the Shadow of Invisibility, Ralph Ellison and the Promise of American Democracy by Sterling L. Bland Jr. is out now from Louisiana State University Press. For more information about Anthony Burgess, and to find out how you can support the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit anthonyburgess.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.